Hi, listeners. You can now listen to this community podcast production ad-free on Apple Podcasts and access the podcast one week early and get exclusive bonus content. Just hit the subscribe button now on Apple Podcasts. Or if you want access to all of the above, plus video versions of the podcast, head to patreon.com forward slash stop the killing. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. I'm Sarah Ferris, true crime podcaster. And I'm Catherine Schweit, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. And you're listening to Stop the Killing. Well, welcome to season four. This is our big next crossover episode. We've done a few over the seasons now. And this one we're doing with Bob Motter of the Defense Diaries podcast. So welcome, Bob. How are you? I am excellent. Thank you for having me. Now, I was going to say, we first met in Las Vegas Crime Con, and the thing that I really stored away in my mind was your podcast, and my podcast had one thing in common, and that was we both had a personal connection to the first story that we did. But yours is absolutely crazy, your first connection. So do you want to just tell us about the 21st birthday present that you got from your dad? And by the way, I actually listened to Conning the Con on my flight back from Vegas. I started it. So I, I binged it and I loved it. I thought it was oh, great. Nice. You know, your nice. story was unbelievable. So um, yeah. And just so you you guys understand, like I'm a criminal defense attorney by trade. So back when I was turning 21, my father naturally had a, a birthday party for me. And there was this one particular Mexican restaurant we always seemed to go to for our family celebrations. You know, I had a bunch of friends there and a bunch of family there, and he he gives me my gift and kind of the way I describe it in the pod, which is an absolutely true story. I, I had been driving it around in a, for you youngsters out there, you might not know, but, uh, an AMC Matador, which is probably one of the ugliest cars ever made. So I've been driving this. <laughs> I'm laughing. For- if the people are listening, cannot see, I am laughing very hard right <laughs> now, Bob. <laughs> yeah, it, it was really, really hard to to try to pick up uh, people of the opposite persuasion as a young man in that car. Uh, sad, so, sad statement, Bob. Sad. Oh, I man. mean, you could have taken a little red wagon and had better luck. <laughs> I agree. Exactly. That's very, very true. So I was hoping that my father had gotten me a car. So he hands me this gift. It's about the size of a shoebox. It's wrapped. I open it up and and it's a shoebox, but it, it it's like an old shoebox, <laughs> and I could tell it wasn't shoes because it wasn't heavy enough. So I I open it up, and it's just these cassette tapes, and you know I, I had no idea what they were, so I, I closed the lid of the box and I looked down and it just said Gacy tapes. That was all it said, and you know obviously I I was well aware of my father represented John Wayne Gacy back in 78. And, you know, so he took me aside. He said, look, these are all my taped interviews with John Wayne Gacy that I did in preparation of trial. And they're the only ones on the planet. They're historic in that sense. And, you know, I I wanted to give them to you. They're part of what my legacy is on this planet. Good, bad, or indifferent, you know, and he said, someday maybe you'll be able to do something with them. I've got about 16 hours of my father and John Wayne Gacy going at it, preparing for trial. In an insanity defense case, which is very different than your typical case, 
and I, I wanted to be able to put it in a format that was compelling and interesting. And I held on to those for 30 years and didn't do anything with them. I didn't know what to do with them. And the pandemic made it like a situation where it allowed me to catch my breath for the first time in 20 years. And I started the pod. I went into it with the express intent of focusing on the victims, trying to tell their story as much as I could. Ultimately, we cover the trial pretty extensively. The investigation really is a bulk of the story and what we uncovered about how they actually got John Wayne Gacy under arrest is absolutely mind-blowing. Like it really we, is. I've listened, obviously, to the whole first season. I binged it. And I'm not going to give any spoilers away because it's well worth listening to. And the thing I love about Defence Diaries is it's really fascinating getting that behind the scenes, how the case unfolds. And, you know, it's so entertaining at the same time. I thought we did a masterful job with it. Ultimately, anybody that wants to know anything about that case should listen to the podcast. And we end it with my father performing his opening argument, which only the people in the courtroom heard, which is absolutely brilliant. Like I, I, I'm biased, of course, because it's my father, <laughs> but from a completely subjective point of view, you're going to be absolutely blown away. So yeah, we're, we're very proud of that show. And second season is a case I handled out of Omaha, Nebraska, and my client was perceived to have been a serial killer, Dr. Anthony Garcia. And it was a death penalty case, and it was a very hard-fought case. He always maintained his innocence from beginning to the end. But from the perspective of, hey, I, I want to focus on the victims, because that's a strange thing for people to understand, is how much defense attorneys actually do care about justice. There's this misnomer that we're all slimy bottom feeders that are trying to find loopholes, which is actually the Constitution. And I'm going to say, Bob, as a former prosecutor... I'm completely the biggest advocate for public defenders, for defense attorneys, yeah. because that is what creates the democracy that we have. Exactly. These are You have to have somebody on both sides arguing it. If you don't have the defense counsel holding their feet to the fire to make sure that they prove the case, innocent people go to jail. That's exactly yeah. right. So from that crazy 21st birthday gift, which, you know, really is probably the most crazy gift I've ever heard of anyone getting on their 21st. Um, it's a crazy one. Yeah. You're a little bit like Liam Neeson coming to this podcast of Stop the Killing because you're coming with a specific set of skills for yeah. us that relate to <laughs> serial killers in right. this particular case. As it's a crossover episode, we're taking your skills and Catherine's skills and I'm banging your heads together. And hopefully what's going to drop out is some interesting comparisons between the minds of a serial killer, which, Bob, you've got far too much experience with, to be fair. Far too much, way too much. <laughs> More than the average. And yeah. Catherine, we're going to look at, obviously, your expertise, which is the mind of a mass shooter. So, Bob, do you want to just give us the helicopter view of, of what makes a serial killer? Yeah, I and I think that primarily without getting to the psychopathy yet, we will heavy duty. But in terms of kind of the differences is, is time. Typically, serial killers, there's some argument as to how many people they have to have killed to be considered to be a serial killer. I think probably the most common number is three. And typically what's required is that there's an interval of time between the killings. At the very least, 
a cool down period time between the killings where the killer killed, stepped back, cooled down, maybe killed a day. I mean, typically what it is, is it's over an extended period of time where you'll have sometimes weeks, months, years between killings. And I promise we will get into the psychopathy of it because that, like, that's really the interesting part. Like that's what I can't wait to get into with Catherine because mm. the difference between those two things. Such a different mindset in certain totally. ways and then such an identical mindset in other ways. Whereas with a mass shooter, that happens typically at, at one point in time and multiple people are killed at that point in time. Now it can be an extended period, 20, 30, 40 minutes, an hour, but it, it happens at once as opposed to a serial killer where you know you, you need that breath, you need that that cooling down period in between the killings to even be considered a serial killer. And because there are two lawyers in the room, I'm going to give you an additional answer. Um, and my, it's absolutely the time element is the essential difference. But a serial killer has uh, seemingly unrelated victims. So they have nothing generally to do with each other. They may have commonalities where it's a wheel and spoke and the killer finds a commonality between them. But there isn't necessarily any reason why they even know each other or live near each other or work together, anything like that. It's possible in certain cases because of the motives of a particular serial killer. But in general, serial killers you know, have a reason why they choose a victim. And that's not because the victim knows another victim necessarily. Whereas mass shooters, they're attempting to kill people in a single event that's continuous. So it might be at their home, they kill a child, their wife and kids, and then they drive to their office. They kill a bunch of people there. That's considered a single motivation, continuous event. So there's that. And there are always issues about, oh, how are you counting these numbers? And that's really about researchers. So for instance, one of the first research efforts done on serial killers was by the FBI. And because the FBI wanted to have enough of a data pool to look to, they said, okay, in our methodology, any killer we believe meets the criteria of a serial killer, but kills two or more people. So they actually went down to two because they wanted to have a deep enough pool to look at the personalities to gather the data on those individuals. So that doesn't mean that a serial killer has to have two or more. It just means that's the way that the FBI looked at it in their initial research on serial killers. And others who choose to do research on serial killers may choose three or more. And so their numbers are going to be different on how many serial killers there are in the world. It's a numbers game for researchers. So I've had the debate with my client where there were four killings. There were five years apart, but it was two double homicides. When people are like, well, is he a serial killer? And I think under your definition, he would, certainly. This is lawyery talk, Sarah. I was going to say. That I mean, definition <laughs> applies to that little section of the law. Right. And then, yeah, so it's always a challenge in terms yeah, of a, a consensus on what the definition is. Well, so. let's pretend that we can agree <laughs> and move I on. Certainly don't disagree. I certainly do I do not disagree with Catherine at all. You I know, always like, like it's, it always on. comes to that, uh, you know, it, it, it's an interesting conversation that could be had by like law nerds, you know? Yeah. So. Yes. And look, I've just <laughs> witnessed it. So sorry. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Bob, how would you 
define the personality of your average serial killer? It's a very broad question. It is. You know, I think that there's a common theme that runs through many of these serial killers. I, I don't think that there's a neat package that any of them could be fit into, but I think that there's typically a sensation seeking element. One thing that is always prevalent is that there's just an absolute lack of remorse or guilt as to what they've done. Um, mm-hmm. that, that is just that particular trait in particular. Um, That's the really, narcissism that comes out. Yeah, I absolutely. think serial killers have that narcissism that mass shooters may or may not have. Absolutely. So, But that trait seems to be prevalent in all of them. No remorse on any serial killers that you've ever come across. Not that I've come across or any that I've researched. I mean, they all, like, they just talk about killing people, like taking out the trash. It's, and it's stunning is, is like a, an empath myself, the concept of trying to wrap my mind around being able to do that, let alone like to take another's life, but then to, to talk about it in such a casual manner as if, there just wasn't a human life that was snuffed out is like, it, I, I can't even honestly wrap my mind around it, but the, you know, so you get the, the lack of remorse or guilt. You've got just this impulsivity. There's a need for control. Some of them control freaks. And then almost all of them will have some predatory behavior. I mean, like they are hunters. You know, Casey was an absolute great white shark apex predator. The man was never not in a position where he was trying to get a victim set up to where he could do what he was compelled, compulsed to do. Well, and if you compare that, when you talk about somebody who's a predator and impulsive and controlling and apex predator, and then we look at somebody who is a mass killer, they're almost the antithesis of that. In many instances, the motivations may be different, but their history tells us that they are often the weakest link where a serial killer is narcissistic and very self-focused. The self-focus for a mask shooter is somebody who believes they're a failure, who believes that the world has failed them, that their boss has failed them, their spouse has failed them. They have been inconsistent in what their terms of successes are because of others around them, and they're grasping to control their world. And so many times when they buy this equipment, they create a persona, right? Because they are not the person. When you think about, um, not that I have a lot of photographs of what John Wayne Gacy was dressed in when he went to approach someone, but he was dressed in his normal clothes, in his street clothes. And I mean, when he wasn't dressed as a clown. And so, you know, he was himself when he went after somebody, even though he had that whole other track running in his head of control and manipulation. Oftentimes we see these mass killers, they are literally reinventing even what they look like. They take photographs of themselves holding weapons to show themselves in the mirror how cool they look. They shave their hair or they get tattoos or change their clothes. They put on what they think somebody is going to wear if they're a badass killer. So black pants and black boots and a black shirt. So they create a whole different person. Actually, the person they are is not the person they like. 
And I think that's very different than a serial killer. I think that there's that kind of that aspect of, you know, mass shooters tend to like gravitate more towards the loner type description. Whereas serial killers, if you look at them as a whole, are not that. Like they are very much integrated into normal society. It's their ability to be able to blend in so seamlessly mm-hmm. with normal society is what, mm-hmm. what makes them so terrifying. You know what, Bob? Uh, Mythbuster here, mass shooters are not loners either. I mean, people believe that, but they in fact are very integrated. You know, 80% of them have strong social in-person relationships, marriages, work and everything. But the difference maybe is that they don't feel comfortable in the world they're in. They don't feel like they're part of that world. So in some ways in their mind, maybe they're loners. There are self-isolators. Like for example, one of the Columbine killers he had gone to the prom two days earlier. I mean, these these kids are not isolated, but they create an image that then is perpetuated in media. They create this image of the sole loner person who can't do things. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't individuals who have done this. The Columbine killers by far have the most ridiculous myths identified with their personalities that are so inaccurate. But in beyond that, the shooters in places like uh, Parkland, Sandy Hook, those are a minority of shootings. When we talk about mass shooters, more than 50% of them are in places of business and the average age is 35 years old. So most of our shooters are those older shooters, but there are celebrated younger ones who self-isolate and reject. And it's clear when they go back and piece together that those very celebrated, horrible shootings at schools, which we've had a handful of are individuals who create this myth of who they think they want to be, and they get more and more self-isolated. And once they get themselves to a completely isolated position, then then they cause a mass killing, which is unfortunate. The thing that seems to be striking me is that we talk about the serial killers and that psychopathic trait and the fact that they will hide in plain sight. So they are trying to conform. They control the situation in a way that makes them look like they are getting on with everyday life. Where from the mass shooting cases that we've covered, that doesn't seem to be the case. The control is different. They can't keep a lid on the anger and haven't got that predatory, sorry, not the predatory, but the psychological mask is what I've heard it termed as before from a, from a psychologist on Con in the Con, where they reflect back to you what you want to see. Am I right in saying, Catherine, that these mass shooters don't seem to have that piece of the puzzle in their makeup? Yeah, I love what you just did comparing your Conning the Con, which is a, a fantastic podcast, because it, you talk to somebody there who says, I want to con these people, so I am going to lure them in and create a person that they want to like and trust, which is in so many ways, just exactly what a serial killer does. But Bob, I just wanted to translate for you when she says predatory, how did you say that? <laughs> predatory. Was that right? Predatory? Predatory. Um, well, predatory. Was- so Bob, that's predatory. I mean, just uh, wanted to help you out with the translation there. We always joke I, that we need a podcast been, with subtitles, which just would not work. Yeah. I so predatory. You, it sounds lovely though. 
Bang, it does. You're, I mean, you're, you know, proper English just sounds better. Yes. <laughs> well, I don't have sounds any. Smarter. So, just sounds smarter. That's true. Hi, I'm Sean McCabe. And I'm Carrie McCabe. We are, well, married, obviously, <laughs> but we're also obsessed with the darker side of things. True crime stories, alien abductions, poltergeists. If it leaves you scratching your head and keeping those lights on at night, we want to hear about it. That's why we host the podcast Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. Every week, we bring our listeners a true story guaranteed to send chills down your spine, from history's most brutal serial killers to the mystery of spontaneous human combustion. Yep, lots of these stories leave unanswered questions behind, and you'll get to poke through the rubble of the evidence with a hardened skeptic and... Someone whose mind is more open to fun. Yeah, that's what I was going to (laughs) say. You can find Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie wherever you get your podcasts, and on social media at Ain't It Scary. Come play with us. Have you ever felt that pang of disappointment when you couldn't add a ticket to your collection because it was digital? Or maybe you just lost it? Well, Stubforge.com is here to change that. Imagine this. Tickets that not only look but feel like the real deal. Because each ticket from Stubforge is printed on the same quality stock that Ticketmaster uses and printed with genuine ticket printers. It's like holding a piece of the concert, the game, or the show right in your hands. But Stubforge isn't just about replacing tickets. With the easy-to-use interactive designer, you can create custom tickets for anything, from concerts to sports games, pregnancy announcements, or parties. Why not make your invitations stand out with tickets that are as unique as your event? And if you're trying to complete a back catalogue of missing tickets, StubForge offers bulk discounts to make it both easy and affordable. With StubForge, you can once more give your loved ones physical tickets and see their eyes light up instantly at the best gift you can give. So whether you're looking to reignite your ticket collection, craft the perfect gift, or send the coolest invites, head over to StubForge.com. Start creating today and see how StubForge makes every ticket a story worth saving. Visit stubforge.com and start making tickets today. So definitely there's a similarity there that you and Bob can both speak to about your subjects, as we call them in the law world, your bad guys who are predatory and they lure in their victims where we don't see that at all in, in mass killers. Mm. Right. What is there any actual commonalities that you see in the personalities between both of them? We've talked a lot about the differences, that difference in control. Do they all lack that remorse? I don't think that mass shooters do because I think mass right. shooters are becoming a completely different person in order to commit their crime. Bob, do you think that's true compared to serial killers? Yes, I do. You know, it's like a unicorn to find a serial killer who shows remorse sometimes after, even after 30, 40 years of of reflecting, Mm -hmm. it's just, it doesn't happen. It's like that particular feature in their mind is not present, you know, and and, Mm -hmm. there's no amount of time is going to make them start reflecting like, wow, like anything that any of them say after the fact is just so disingenuous if it's right. (laughs) <laughs> anything that they may say in terms of having regret or remorse, you know, is just not genuine. I completely agree. It's disingenuous. And that's what's fascinating about your podcast and the tapes that you have with interviews with Gacy before, 
because we know that after somebody is convicted, they say anything they want to say, and it doesn't matter, and they make up lies, or they say something. Because if you are stuck in jail for the rest of your life, how often would you want somebody to come and break up your day in your cell by pulling you into a room and interviewing you? And how long would you keep them in there to chat? (laughs) Every day? mm -hmm. In the federal system, we routinely concur in declining interviews. There really are not jailhouse interviews that are done on federal prisoners. And, And I think that's one of the reasons why. They're just looking for an opportunity to get away from the lunch table with the metal trays. You know, they just want to say whatever they can say to keep themselves in the news because so many of them, especially somebody like a serial killer, once they're found out, they are famous and they love that. And and our mass shooters, when you talk about commonalities, you asked Sarah, I think one of them is they want to be famous in their own way. They want the notoriety. That's interesting. It is something that we talk about all the time on our podcast, Bob, is the no name, no notoriety because, you know, of this contagion effect. Does that also happen with serial killers? Is there a contagion effect or is it just that they want the fame? I think that they're driven because of their narcissistic personalities. They're driven by the fame. After the fact, though. Yeah. Yeah. After the fact. After after they're they're caught. They're discovered. Right. Yeah. So- I, like I don't think that that is the motivation going in for any of them. But no, after, yeah, I agree. After the fact, I think it's a hundred percent. You know, I mean, you'll have rare guys like Israel Keys. Like his whole deal with the feds was, look, I'm going to give you information on the people that I've killed. However, what I want is two things. I want my execution date post haste. I want it immediately. I'm not going to trial. I'm not appealing. I want to be executed. But the main agreement like with the feds is that they would not put anything out to the press that they had caught him or that mm-hmm. he existed, which is why no one heard of Israel Keys. Like the feds had held up that end of the bargain. But you know what? So, Bob, I know why the feds agree to stuff like that because mm-hmm. I was a fed. Yeah, for the purposes of trying to find the victims. Like that was mm-hmm. that was a hundred percent the motivation of the feds. Right. They wanted to try to give some relief to these families. Like a, a large mm-hmm. part of me thinks that that Israel Keys was completely full of crap. He just makes up stuff. Yeah, I think that's that. I want to be famous, and serial killers want to be famous after the fact, and mass shooters want to be famous before the fact. Yes, right. that's the nutshell of it, right mm-hmm. there. You know, you asked about similarities, Sarah, and I think that I was pawing through my mushy brain and thinking about the kind of things that Bob talks about in his fantastic podcast. And one of the similarities is I think there's really no profile of an individual. That's the most important thing. You know, anybody around you could be a serial killer. Anybody around you could be a mass killer. She was down my spine. Yeah, you're welcome. There you go. Although, of course, we know most... Most most mass killers are male, and I think that higher percentage of serial killers are male. And also, their motivations are different. Let's dig into that because there are quite different motivations. Let's talk about the serial killer's motivations, Bob. Why? They vary. So, Bob, riddle me this. So, we have mass killers who want to be famous. Do you have serial killers who want to be famous? I don't think going into it, no, I don't think that anyone that that we would term as a serial killer goes into it with the intent of, I, I mean, like maybe Son of Sam did, 
you know, maybe there's a few of them, maybe the Zodiac. Like, I mean, there's yeah. certainly killers out there that toy and play cat and mouse. With or maybe we create that story after the fact as we piece it together. So exactly. we have mass shooters who have interpersonal problems with their spouses and their mm-hmm. domestic partners. And that creates anger. And this kind of anger spills over into their relationships with their friends and family. And it makes them feel that they're not part of their community. Do you see that with serial killers? Not as much. Like you really don't. In particular with Gacy, I mean, for folks our age, and especially you and I, Catherine, as being, you know, in the United States, he was like Norm from Cheers. Like he would yep. walk into. It's <laughs> a good description. No, yeah, it really was. Like he would walk into the local bars and everyone would say, John, the guy was a Democratic precinct captain. He's he a regular was, guy. He was a regular guy. Now, like Anthony Garcia, the case I handled out of Omaha, he was different. He was a more withdrawn person and did not play well with others, like professionally. You know, he was a mm-hmm. doctor. If he was, in fact, the killer, his motivation was more in line with that of a mass shooter because it was from being disgruntled, from being fired from the pathology department at Creighton University seven years earlier. And the state's theory was it just haunted his entire career. Mm -hmm. Every time that he would try to get licensed in a different state, they said, well, you know, you were fired from your residency for acting unprofessionally, you know, so that that finally just kept following him and following and following him to the point where it became his number one thing in life to exact revenge on those that had wronged him. His motivation was different if he's the guy, you know, that the length of time is what I had the hardest time kind of wrapping my mind around in terms of defending him because he didn't fit what we typically know as kind of the MOs of a serial killer. You know what I mean? So it was like, it was different. It was, it was unusual, but for the most part, my answer would be no. I mean, I think that there's always going to be exceptions. Like I'm sure you'll be able to name a couple of guys that revenge or just being disgruntled, whether it be soldiers, you know, maybe the DC sniper. For the most part, it depends on whether their motivation was sexual in nature I can, it depends on what their motivation to start killing is, you know? So that leads me to my last question of comparison. So we have mass killers, mass shooters who fit into the categories of incels and others who are sexually frustrated. They feel that the world of women have rejected them and they're going to exact their revenge by going to some location and shooting as many people as they can randomly. Do you have people like that in your serial killer world? Oh, for certain. Yeah. When you've got the killers that that tend to focus on female victims and want that control and dominion over female victims, I think that that's born out of exactly what you're talking about. I, I think that that's born out of rejection. So yes, as far as that goes, absolutely. I would say that majority of the the killers that have focused on women have a real misogynistic view of women that could go back as as early as to you know my mommy didn't love me type situations and then progressed from there after years and years of being rejected so yeah i think that is definitely a crossover for sure Mm. the word that really jumped out to me bob that you used there that i think might be one of the maybe differences is compulsion do we see compulsion in mass shooters at all, or is it more of a build like a boiling pot on the stove? Mass shooters are a boiling pot. 
They may be by their own choice, but I don't think any of the hundreds of cases that I've researched and worked on myself have ever fallen squarely into the, I'm just a compulsive person and I can't help myself, except for those handful of people who truly have very serious mental health diagnoses, uh, psychopaths. And that's a very rare circumstance in terms of the types of killers that we deal with in mass shootings. Yeah. You know, with respect to serial killers, like no one can tell me that there's not a compulsion there. And when, (laughs) when I was getting into the Gacy thing and, and remember I grew up with my father having defended one of the most horrific human beings ever walked the planet. So I had to try to answer the question that people would ask me all the time, which is how could your father defend that person? You know, and I, like my first line of defense to that was always, well, I I need you to understand that the defense was not that Gacy did not commit the murders. It was that he was insane. And it's an important question. Okay. And it's a big delineation between the two. You know, it's one thing to go in there and say, oh, I didn't do it. It's another to say, well, I did it. And by operation of law, now we're arguing that he was compulsed, that he did not have the ability to conform his behavior to the law. That's what the insanity defense is. And it's vastly different. So like that was always the way I would deflect people in terms of saying that's how. Bob, do you think it's fair to say that a lot of times serial killers would, if we got a true answer out of them, and a true answer out of a mass shooter, which both of those are rare anyway, but a serial killer often would say, I can't help myself, where a mass shooter would say, they made me do it. He drove me to it. They drove me to it. I don't think that the serial killers are focused on their victims as much as the victims causing it. The victims are just the the operation. Yeah. Gacy did that exact thing. He was a a victim blamer. And when we get to the clips, the second clip that I wanted you guys to hear was so fascinating to me because he does exactly that. Like, so Gacy ends up really only confessing to five killings out of the 33 that have been attributed to him. And every single one of them, he's victim blaming. He is saying that they were either blackmailing him because they were going to tell people that they had sexual relations together. So now they were trying to come and get money from him. Timothy McCoy, his first victim, he claims had attacked him while he was sleeping. He was standing over with a knife. So Gacy did that all the time. It's how he could create justification for something that he was really kind of compulsively couldn't help himself from doing. That's how he manifests it to the public. That's how he tells others, oh, well, they made me do this. Right. But that and, compulsion, we don't see in mass shootings at all. Exactly. And, and Gacy being the narcissist, because, you know, the one thing about all these guys is that they're always the smartest guy in the room. For you, sure. You, you can't crack my riddle. You know, my, my, <laughs> That's my, right. Far too complex for you people to understand. So it was like that dynamic going on between my father and Gacy is, to me, by far the most fascinating aspect. Because mm-hmm. Gacy, from the moment he's taken into custody, never thought that it was going to stick. Right. But Sarah, isn't that similar to your con man? Right. I mean, you're you're in the con. Your con man thinks he's the smartest guy in the room. Mm -hmm. And he continues and continues even when he knows, I think you guys are on to him, not to spoiler alert, not to tell 
listeners what's going on because you totally should listen to this. But man, here's a guy who thinks he's got control of everything. And I'm sure that's very similar. Well, maybe we should play the clip, but that's exactly what I heard when your dad, Bob, was talking to this killer. Well, you two are just jumping way too far ahead yet again. (laughs) And we have been talking for a while. So I think what we're going to do is come back next week because we will definitely put the audio clips in and talk about that in part two of this crossover episode. Thanks for listening. And if you want to know more, Catherine's book, Stop the Killing, is out now. For more details, go to katherineschweit.com. Please consider also supporting our independently made podcast. It's simple to do. Go to patreon.com forward slash stop the killing. And for as little as the price of a latte a month, you can be part of the solution to stop the killing. Patreon rewards range from official do-gooder status to ad-free episodes, autographed books, and opportunities to connect with us directly for your business, school, church, or even just a book club chat. But just knowing that you are part of a movement that has the power to make your community safer, well, that's got to taste better than a skinny cappuccino any day. So please head to patreon.com forward slash stop the killing now and polish off your do-gooder halo and make sure to include your name so we can give you a shout out. This podcast is a community podcast production. That's con with an N. If you want more content, then head over to Community Podcast at Instagram, where you'll find trailers on more binge-worthy true crime, like the award-winning podcast Conning the Con. And check out our show notes for all the links mentioned. Finally, if you want one takeaway action that you can do right now that can help make our community safer, Please share, rate and review this podcast wherever you listen. Everybody needs to know that they hold the keys to see something and say something. Together, we can stop the killing. It's one of those things you hope never happens, but you better train for it. Because it will happen. And it will happen in places you wouldn't expect. Be ready for it. Listeners, there's been a few references to Conning the Con podcast in today's episode. So here is a little taste of Conning the Con. And you can always find links to the Community Podcast productions in the show notes. Something is creeping in. Don't follow it down. 24 hours ago, I found out the person that I've been dating for the last six months is a con man. That is my sister, Emma. Andrew Tonks's lies had been so convincing, she'd invested $300,000 with him. However, the tables were about to turn on Andrew. What he didn't know was that Emma had discovered his real identity. But to get any chance of justice, Emma had to act like it was business as usual. Coming up in this series... And that's when murder, Mm. all this stuff goes through my mind. I'm really, really scared. I'm assuming Sarah has watched too much Netflix and figures I've been defrauding you. Couldn't be further from the truth. That's what this was, a real-life story that seems so unbelievable, but it was actually true. A true story that all starts with one simple swipe to the right. I'm Sarah Ferris. And I'm Emma Ferris, and this is my story, Conning the Con. Hi, I'm Matt Harris. Seton Tucker and I host the podcast Impact of Influence, which for two years covered in-depth Alec Murdoch, who was eventually convicted in 2023 of murdering his wife, Maggie, and son, Paul. That story continues to evolve, and we will cover that. Plus, we will tell you stories of other 
true crime events that have happened in the South. Please join us on Impact of Influence and give us a follow on the Impact of Influence Facebook page. Hello, this is Dr. Grande, the host of True Crime Psychology and Personality. On my podcast, I explore and explain the pathology behind some of the most horrendous crimes and those who commit them. We discuss topics like narcissism, psychopathy, sociopathy, and antisocial personality disorder from a scientifically informed perspective. What is a narcissist? How do you spot a sociopath? What signs can you look for to protect yourself from these dangerous personalities? It's not just about the stories, but also the science and psychology behind them. So if you're interested in true crime or mental health, I'd encourage you to give my show a listen wherever you get podcasts.